Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Hi, and welcome back. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Todd Zwicky. Todd is a professor of law at George Mason University School of Law, teaching in the areas of bankruptcy and contract. But that description does not begin to describe him. When I was doing research for this, I realized that you, Todd, have worked on a ton of really cool stuff, including 17th Amendment and um, pay lending and all of that stuff, financial regulation, bankruptcy, and so much more. So I've decided that we're going to try to cover a few different things. And then hopefully sometime in the future, we can have another interview and we can talk about even more things because there's so much to cover. Welcome, Todd. Thanks, Juliet. I look forward to talking. So my first question for you is, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? I would say that, uh, um, that probably the most important thing that you guys should know and should be thinking about is what are the what are the the, the certainties and uncertainties and the relative threats uh, about the future. So, for example, um, obviously the, the question of climate change and the like is uh, obviously a, a big issue. It's also a complicated issue with a lot of uncertainty, um, and I can see why people are activated by that. But one of the things that's very striking to me is if you compare that to what looks to me to be the in, imminent and inevitable financial collapse of the uh, of the American government, uh, which is just accounting. Um, at this point, it's just actuarial. There's not that much uncertainty to it that we can't continue on the uh, on the same track. Um, and so I think, you know, what that tells me is what would be the most important thing for you guys to think about and, and learn is about sort of weighing risks, uh, weighing risks in the short term versus the long term. Um, life involves trade-offs. Life involves trade-offs today. Life involves trade-offs between today and in the future. Um, and the old saying is there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and, um, and I think that's something that, um, is, is worth developing among, uh, people of your age, both with, as you live your lives today, but in particular, as you think about, um, life going forward. I really like that response, especially because yesterday I interviewed Brian Riedel and we talked about the debt and the deficit and all of the budget stuff. And honestly, I did not realize, like, I always knew it was bad, but that, terrified me because it seems like it's we're just waiting for this collapse that we know is going to happen and no one seems super pressed about doing anything about it and i just don't i don't understand well i, I guess people don't understand it too well but still it's like 22 trillion is a giant number and it looks like it's only going to grow and it is. And that's what's so interesting to me about it, Juliet, which is that a lot of people would say, well, you know, the problem is that people don't appreciate long term risks. Right. And, and, and that sort of thing. But they do. Right. And so what always is interesting to me, especially thinking about um, uh, people of your generation, which is how old my daughter is, is this this completely opposite response between climate change on one hand, as I'm saying, which does show at least some degree of awareness of an ability, whether accurate or inaccurate, to think through the future. And this complete kind of um, head in the, uh, you know, ostrich approach, head in the ground approach to uh, to the budget, which is, I ask people, um, how does this end? How does this end? Tell me how this ends. Um, and nobody wants to address that question of uh, how we keep this catastrophe uh, from happening. And it's just it's just math uh, at this point. And so it's really quite striking. And I don't know whether it's a matter of 
good branding or bad branding or what the case uh, may be. But um, as bad as it is, it's probably worse than anybody uh, thinks. Um, uh, and, and, and I find it very, um, uh, I find it very anxiety provoking. Um, and as we've seen this past year, we're just layering on trillions and trillions of more dollars of debt without any pretense of a plan of how we're ever going to pay it back. I think part of it is that people don't, people have kind of dismissed the idea that the debt actually means something because, especially because it's grown so much. And plus, then there's also the aspect of people like things, people like programs. And so the idea of that program sounds nice. And especially not having to deal with the immediate consequences, no rise in taxes, no like cost to them at the moment whatsoever, that kind of makes it harder to realize what a problem it is. And I think also people don't understand how the budget works and all the formulas and all of that stuff that goes into it. And so it's like a lack of understanding, but also just kind of dismissing it because it's just a number and it doesn't really mean anything, but it does. It just is not understood. I don't know. It's very complicated. (laughs) As it an is. Issue. It, so, it's an unfathomable uh, number, and so I think people just don't try to fathom it and just pretend like it's not <laughs> as big as it is. I can't even imagine. It's such a big number. Like people are like just throwing around trillions now, and I'm like, what happened to like for me? Twenty dollars is a lot. That that to me is a lot of money. A trillion, I can't even imagine but, but having that. Yeah, there's an interesting part of this, Juliet, that I've thought about a, a lot, which is, uh, um, you know, there's been a lot of focus in the last few years, especially among the free market community, um, going back to James Buchanan, the idea of public choice, um, and this idea that uh, interest groups have disproportionate uh, influence over the political process, which is demonstrably clear. Um, and But one of the things we forget about is that James Madison in the Federalist Papers, Federalist 10, wrote this um, famous paper, you know, this famous contribution about the, the concern about majorities, um, the majority tyranny. Um, and we think, well, Madison missed the mark because um, the real problem is what we call minoritarian tyranny, which are these well-organized interest groups. But the reality is, Julia, th- th- that's not who's bankrupting America, right? America is being bankrupted by the middle class. Um, and it turns out that the least represented um, people in politics are future generations. Um, and so what we don't have is so much necessarily the middle class, as, as Madison was concerned, majorities ganging up on minorities. But we have is everybody ganging up on, on the future, um, the, the least represented group. And so all of these entitlements, all the things that are leading us down the path to ruin – are really mechanisms for uh, transferring money from the future to the uh, to the present, um, and I don't think people have really thought about that problem as being the biggest problem. And maybe Madison was right that majorities um, are really are the problem, and majorities are the problem relative to future generations. And I think even if my generation and future generations were better represented, it would be difficult because we don't really understand money. I mean, I feel like no one understands money like super well, but of all the people, I feel like my generation struggles to understand what money means and like the value of that. And so I don't know, it's just hard because it's like all these old people in Congress and then like all the young people are getting screwed. Everyone is just kind of a mess, (laughs) but okay. Let's jump in. So when I talked to Deirdre McCloskey a few months ago, I asked her what the difference was between an economist and an economic historian, because she's an economic historian. So you work in law and economics, and you help run the Law and Economics Center at GMU, George Mason University. So can you kind of describe to us and explain what law and economics is and how it's different from law and how it's different from economics? Oh, great question to start off with. So um, here's the way to, to think about it, which is um, when most people think about law um, and they think about law school, what you think about is you sit down and you learn these, le- you read a bunch of cases and you learn about legal concepts. Um, you know, these will be Greek to you and your listeners, but things like consideration or 
uh, or proximate cause, all these sorts of things. Um, well, it turns out that, that those sort of legal concepts um, are not self-defining and self-determining. And um, there was uh, a, about a century or so ago, there was an intellectual concept called legal realism that says basically what under what lies underneath the law, in particular the common law, and the common law is case by case analysis by judges deciding actual cases. So that if you and I enter into a contract and I breach the contract, you can sue me for damages. Or if I rear-end you uh, uh, driving on the road, you can sue me for damages. And that law in the United States is what is called common law, which is it's basically what you think of, which is, you know, a jury sits there and they decide who is at fault and what the damages are and whether I'm liable for smashing into you or maybe you were liable because you actually made an illegal lane change and that's the real reason I rear-ended you or whatever the uh, whatever the case may be. So that's the common law. The common law is this idea that the law evolves on this case-by-case analysis, applying these legal concepts. Um, and what legal realism uh, this basically said was, look, underneath that case-by-case analysis, there's a logic. Um, and it's sometimes um, expressed and articulated, but often it's inarticulate. Um, and what law and economics basically said is that there's uh, an economic, a set of economic um, ideas that knit together all of these different aspects of the common law. Um, and what they say is that it tends to promote efficiency, which we would think of it as the common law through this case-by-case analysis for various reasons ends up being a system of law that maximizes coordination among people and gives us the best ability to uh, to plan our affairs and kind of see things through to uh, to a successful uh, successful end. It minimizes accidents. It maximizes the value of uh, contracts uh, in, in that sort of thing. And so what law and economics is at root is a way of, uh, of, of illuminating the underlying economic logic that underlies the, uh, the law. So you could contrast it with other approaches to the law, um, such as what, we're saying, what we call legal formalism, uh, which would basically be the idea that the cases speak for themselves. But you could also imagine a feminist theory of law, uh, which is the common law evolves basically to oppress women or a critical uh, race theory of law, which says the law basically is you know, inherently racist. Um, and people make those claims, but the great value of law and economics is that it actually describes the path of the law and the content of the law better than those alternative theories. And so it's the application of economic concepts to illuminate sort of the hidden order of uh, and hidden logic of the common law. That sounds cool. And I don't know. So can you give us an example of how you would approach a problem with law and economics instead of solely with law? Yeah, it's a great that's a that's a great question. Uh, and so the, so the way that law and economics uh, typically approaches is this um, is it, it observes what the uh, what the legal doctrine is that the courts say and then tries to explain what the underlying logic of that uh, of that doctrine is. So um, so an example would be think about a, a, a simple uh, a simple accident case. Um, and there's in uh, in the way the law works is, is there's this idea called negligence, um, which is that if I have an accident with you, if I smash into you, um, I am liable to pay you damages only if it's proven that I was negligent um, in my driving, for example, uh, you know, that I was driving too fast in the rain or I wasn't paying attention or whatever the case may be. Um, the, the alternative would be an idea called strict liability and strict liability would be the idea that simply because I smashed into you, I am liable, even if I took all appropriate care. Um, and what the common law says is the, the standard rule for something like that is negligence. Um, and sort of the underlying logic of it is that, yeah, if I, that there's things I could do to avoid the accident. There's also things you could do to avoid the accident. So even though I smashed into you, 
there may have been things that you could have done that would have keep, kept me from smashing into you. And so the cause of the accident, we may think of as me smashing into you, but the cause of the accident was that we really actually smashed into each other. Um, uh, um, and what the law says is that uh, um, I only have to pay you damages if you can show that I was negligent in the way I was driving. Um, and the logic of the law says, well, that's because we want you to take, you want me to take appropriate precautions. But we also want you to take appropriate precautions so that if, for example, you're negligent um, in the way you change lanes, I shouldn't be held liable for that because if you had driven better, that would have avoided the uh, avoided the accident. So the idea is is that the underlying logic of the law is to get both of us to take cost justified precautions, but not take precautions that are not cost justified um, because that's just a waste of uh, of, uh, of resources. Um, Ronald Coase, he was the creator of the field of law and economics. Can you tell us a bit about his work and what you think his biggest contribution to the field was? Why was his work important? Great question. And, and the reason is uh, sort of right where, where I left off uh, at the end of my last uh, answer, which is that the Coase is associated with an idea called the Coase theorem. Um, and it's a very counterintuitive but powerful idea. Um, and, and I'll try to try to simplify it, which is um, – Think about uh, it, that basically what Coase says is in a world in which people can bargain, um, the, the initial creation of however you allocate the risk of something, um, the responsibility for avoiding uh, a problem um, will not be related to or will not determine where things end up at the end. So think about it this way. So say that you and I enter into a contract um, and the contract says that if I breach the contract, I have to pay you 10 times the actual damages uh, that you would suffer from my breach of the, uh, of the contract. Um, well, what am I going to do um, in response to the fact that if I if I accidentally can't perform the contract for some reason, I have to pay you 10 times your damages. But what am I going to do? I'm going to raise the price um, and I'm going to charge you a higher price before I'm going to enter into contract with you. And so I say to you, well, you know, yeah, you're lucky if, you know, if I breach, I can give you 10 times damages. But do you really need that considering that I'm going to make you pay more? Uh, I'm going to make you pay more for the services that I'm providing. You might say, oh, no, all I really need is fully compensatory damages. I said, okay, in that case, what if we said, I'll pay you whatever your actual damages are, and I'll give you a much lower price. Um, and so to the extent that we can contract around the rule like that, what we're going to end up with is what is the efficient allocation, which is I will agree to pay compensate you fully if I don't perform my contract. And you don't have to pay me a premium to compensate me for the for the additional risk. And so that's what COSA's great insight is, um, I think, is that um, in a world in which uh, parties can voluntarily interact and contract, um, the initial allocation of, of liability doesn't really matter. And so you can compare that to the example of the car accident where we can't negotiate uh, ahead of time. And so in that situation, you could have parties, um, uh, you could have an inefficient rule uh, that causes parties to take, um, you know, unnecessary precautions uh, and, and the like. And the difference is in one, in the first scenario, you have what's called low transaction costs. In the second scenario, you uh, you have high transaction costs, which means that the parties cannot easily rearrange uh, the initial allocation of uh, responsibility. When you think about it, it makes so much sense, just the way you explained it. And I remember reading about him a little bit, and he was something, he was in his early 20s, I'm pretty sure, when he was coming up with this sort of stuff, which is absolutely amazing. That's, I don't know, it's kind of cool <laughs> and yeah. helpful, I can imagine. Yeah, it's a very powerful sort of uh, sort of thing, right? And one of the things that I think is fascinating about it, uh, Juliet, that I think is fascinating about law and economics, which is 
it also suggests that the power of central authorities to force people to do things that they don't want to do is quite limited. Um, and so, so sort of a corollary to that logic, you could think about the minimum wage. Um, and you can try to order uh, a business to pay somebody $15 an hour rather than $7 an hour or whatever their, their, their market rate is. But what happens? Well, one thing that happens is unemployment. But another thing that happens is the employer will reduce costs somewhere else. So they may reduce, for example, your health care benefits uh, to make up for uh, make up for the for the fact that now they have to pay you a higher out of pocket wages, and to the extent that you prefer lower wages and higher health care benefits, you're going to be made worse off. That is a similar sort of Coase uh, theorem intuition, which is um, that you can squeeze the balloon in one place, it's going to pop up somewhere else. In a world in which parties can enter into contracts, um, there's a limit to the ability of the uh, the government to push them around and make them do things that they would, uh, that they don't think is uh, uh, in their own interest. And that's also an important aspect of that issue that it's not that people don't talk about it, but that's not often what comes to mind, but it's an important factor to take into consideration. So kind of along a similar path, um, when talking to Don Boudreau, he talks about legislators, but he never calls them lawmakers. He never <laughs> talks about how Congress passes laws. He calls it legislation. F.A. Hayek also made a big deal about this and about the distinction between law and legislation being different things. So what exactly does this mean? And do you agree? I've, I've wanted to know this for a while now. <laughs> Well, you're, uh, you've, you've just touched on one of my, uh, my favorite, uh, um, topics because I was literally just talking to my, uh, contracts law class about this this week, uh, cause I'm teaching, um, uh, contracts law, which is, uh, which is common law. And with respect to legislatures, one of my favorite lines, one of my favorite articles is really, I just like the title of the article, uh, which is a famous article by the political scientist, um, Keith Shepsley. And the article is simply entitled Congress is a they, not an it, uh, which is that uh, the Congress is what comes out of the legislative sausage grinder is the composite effects of hundreds of legislators responding to different constituencies uh, uh, and the like. Um, and it's a and it's a compromise without really a meaning um, with respect to the difference between law and legislation. Then it kind of grows out of that, uh, which is. Legislation is literally just the imposition by sovereign authority of uh, of mandates from the government. Um, and Hayek and, and I would consider regulation issued by the regulatory agencies uh, would be under the view of legislation uh, as well. They just simply tell people what to do. The what is the mandate, what is the, quote, law, unquote, in that situation is the written text that is produced. And partly it's the written text because it is the compromise of all of these different intents that people have. And they hammer out uh, something and you you read the statute and that's the law. Um, and that's what they mean when they talk about textualist interpretation of statutes. Law, in the sense in which um, Hayek talks about it, in which the sense that uh, that uh, Don Boudreau, my good friend, talks about it, is a conceptual thing. Uh, law is a set of principles that are generally applicable to a wide range of, uh, of, of people uh, and develop over time by the contribution of many judges, by many actors, um, voluntarily sort of uh, um, bringing lawsuits and uh, um, uh, trying to coordinate their affairs uh, affairs better. And so one of the points I make to my class is that if you read a common law case, like we've been talking about, the law is not actually the verbal statement of how the judge precisely says it. But the law is, is the underlying principles that the judge is trying to articulate as best as he can with respect to the words. When it comes to legislation, the words are themselves the law. 
uh, that did you did you apply the words of the law because that's what's been passed by Congress and signed into a law by the president, not whatever unarticulated premises or intents might underlie that or, or concepts. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Don always uses the um, the example of oh, we all wear shirts. That's that's just how our that's the law of our society. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily a law that the government it's not legislation that the government has passed or we greet each other it's just the way that the society functions together and kind of taking cases in context of the society so your sentence depends on how acceptable a certain thing i don't know it's it's really interesting i think it's a really funny thing to talk about that's a great that's a Great example, and as usual, Don um, uh, (laughs) example—he's so good at that. But what Hayek talks about are rules, Um, and Hayek's view is that legal rules are just one form of rules that people have. There's customs, there's norms, there's all these different sorts of things that that people rely on to coordinate their affairs, and that you just kind of know by living in society. Um, and that a lot of times they don't have to be expressed in law because people just uh, um, um, abide by them. But the interesting thing that the way in which the common law reflects that is the most common word you will hear when it comes to reading a legal case is, was the action of this person reasonable? Um, and, And reasonable is nowhere stipulated, nowhere codified in any statute. Reasonable is, would a jury of 12 people think this person acted reasonably in this situation, Uh, which is very much the sort of um, unarticulated, um, intuitive sort of idea of what do people expect, um, uh, how do people expect that other people should behave? How should you be expected to behave in a given society, and did you act reasonably? And so it's very similar to what Don was saying um, from wearing shirts uh, to uh, to how you're supposed to drive your car. Um, were you driving unreasonably fast, given the fact that it's snowing out and it's you know dark uh, and the roads are icing up? Is different from is it reasonable to uh, to drive uh, um, a different speed? plowing through the desert in the middle of the afternoon without another car within uh, uh, 50 miles of you. I thought it was such a silly thing to think about and such a silly thing to get hung up on before. But the more and more I think about it, the more I think it makes sense. And the more I think it's important that people think about it because I don't know. In a way, it's not important because it's not always entirely relevant. It's just the way people function and the way people think. But it's also in the context of thinking about a certain case or a certain issue, it is relevant because to some person, that might be the reason why they interpret it differently. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting thing. And and the real concern I have on this is the, the larger concern. Juliet, is that that society rests on a lot of unstated assumptions of how people are supposed to behave. Um, You know, so for so for example, it wasn't that long ago that 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 no, it would never occur to somebody that they would show up at a speech by somebody on a college campus and try to shout that person down to actually keep them from speaking. Um, The idea was, if you don't like the person, don't go to the speech. Right. And so basically what has happened is that rule, that unwritten rule of not interfering with people's ability to hear speech that they want to hear at some point along the way, that rule, that unwritten norm or rule disappeared. And so now what do we have to have? We have to have these very complicated um, systems of legislation, various rules, various limits on what people can do, how they can do it. Then you got to enforce it. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this stuff about, like you're saying, norms and habits and ways of cooperation is that breaks down. Um, you end up with more and more mandates and more and more coercion and more and more of, of you know, authorities telling you what you're allowed to do and, and not do, uh, which just makes the whole problem worse. Um, you know, I always think about the example of as simple as, as kids sports. 
you know, when I was growing up, I played a little bit of organized sports, but mainly we played pickup sports. And, you know, a lot of people have written about this, as you probably know. Um, Lenore Skenazi has written a lot about this, the value of free play by kids. And basically what it is, is you learn norms on the playing field. You learn to call your own fouls. You learn what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. You learn that you don't just quit. Um, uh, you know, you come up with rules like do-overs and majority vote and that sort of thing. But um, but as those norms break down, you get more and more regimented systems of, uh, of rulemaking, which reduces the ability of kids. And when it reduces the ability of kids to deal with their own disputes, it reduces the ability of adults to deal with their own disputes. You learn bad habits of having to appeal to higher authorities who then issue rules to tell you how to behave rather than learning how to behave yourself. And I think that is a uh, kind of downward spiral um, that, uh, that comes about from this confusion of uh, law as we've been talking about it with legislation. Yeah, it does have a lot of consequences if people begin to change it, like on college campuses. And if they don't understand, well, that's that's not okay. And it's kind of scary to think that, okay, well, we have society that will create these laws that has this kind of blanket code for what is acceptable, that it's so easily changeable, but also the idea that they that now more and more people are just handing it off to the government instead. Because I don't know why. Yeah, it's not just the government, right? You develop these habits when you're a kid now of, you know, parents step in and resolve um squabbles between between kids, right? The parents get involved now. They where they didn't used to do that in the past. Kids learned how to negotiate um, and do things on their own. And now it's immediately elevated to some parent or some school counselor or somebody like that who decides whether to impose discipline uh, or not. And often that's because of my profession, the lawyers uh, who turn everything into a lawsuit. So um, it's a very, I think it's a very pernicious um, development and it has a lot to do with this idea of not understanding what the sources of, uh, of human cooperation are in this difference between law and legislation. It's actually really interesting. That reminds me of a story that I heard yesterday. I was at track and this kid, this junior was telling me about how this kid in her class um, had his parent email the teacher because he missed a homework assignment and she wouldn't let him make it up. And so right. the parent was emailing and she was like, so the girl was like, this kid is 17 and his parents are fixing his problems for him, but it definitely was his fault. That to me is, that's, I mean, that's a perfect example, I think, which is kind of scary, kind of sad. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, obviously I know your mom and it's hard for me to see your mom emailing your teacher if you miss an assignment. <laughs> and I'm on her side. <laughs> okay. So moving on to financial regulation, you've worked a lot on this. So after the financial crisis of 2008, Congress and regulators moved really aggressively to impose new regulations on a variety of consumer products like mortgages, credit cards, things like that, which have seen record high default rates in recent months. Congress has also considered putting new regulations on non-traditional types of lending, like payday loans or payday lending, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, you've written a lot about how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has tried to eliminate the payday lending industry. And when I think about payday lending, I think about loan sharks who charge you 30% the interest rate a day. And if you don't pay back, they're going to break your leg or they'll send someone after you. So can you tell us about how that image is wrong and about some of your work on the issue? Yeah. And so, and, and so here's the basic point, which is people have a demand for credit. People need credit. Um, that's, that's for two reasons. The first is to what we can think of as make investments. And we think about using about using debt and borrowing to make investments as something businesses do, but people do the same thing. And, and an investment is something where basically you can buy what we would call a capital good in uh, economics, and it will provide a stream of benefits uh, over time. So 
for a business, the obvious example is something like, say, you buy a new printing press or a new delivery van or a new a steel rolling um, uh, machine or a new um, uh, computer uh, in, in the like, right? And we understand that. And the logic is you can buy that on credit um, and finance it. And the productivity increase you get will exceed um, what it costs to finance it. So say you've got to dig a hole, your uh, construction company. You could hire 12 guys with shovels or you could hire one guy with a backhoe uh, you could buy the backhoe and finance it. Um, and the idea would be that the productivity is sufficiently high that you can, from the one guy in the backhoe, that uh, it'll cost less in the long run, even though you have to pay interest on it rather than paying 12 guys by the day. Most of what consumers spend their money on when they borrow is the same sort of thing, and most people don't realize it. So obviously, a home is a capital good, an education. Um, the idea with uh, taking student loans, of course, is that you will borrow money, go to college. It'll cost you money, but at the same time, the increase in your wages should be mean in the end you end up making money off of it. Um, a car is the same sort of uh, sort of thing, and we saw this when cars first came out. Great irony was that um, General Motors Acceptance Corp came out and allowed people to buy a car pay it off over time and drive the car while they were paying for it. Ford, um, which uh, and Henry Ford for all his uh, good things was uh, quite skeptical of consumer credit for various reasons said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you a car on layaway. Send me a check every month. Uh, you know, and, and we'll put it in, you know, we'll save it for you. And after, you know, 10 years or whatever, if you save up enough money, we'll let you have a car. Um, meanwhile, ride the bus. Right. Um, and so if you understand why that doesn't make any sense, then you understand why most of what people buy uh, um, uh, things with for credit, whether it's a washing machine, a washing machine is one of the best investments you'll ever make in your life because of the cost savings in terms of time and money of not having to go to the laundromat every weekend. Uh, a, a, a washing machine, a stove, a car, an education, a house, a computer, all the different things that you use in your life um, that can make sense to pay for on credit if you don't have enough money. And the second thing is to deal with short-term fluctuations in income and expenses so that if um, you lose your job, for example, um, while you're looking for a new job, you need to might need to borrow, uh, might need to borrow some money. If you have an unexpected medical bill and you don't have sufficient savings, you might need to borrow some money uh, to, to bridge the, uh, the gap. Um, and when you look at people use payday loans, they fit this model. Um, and payday loans are expensive. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And for those who aren't familiar with payday loans, it's borrowing, say, $500. Um, uh, and the way the transaction usually works is you might pay, say, $15 um, in, uh, for every $100 you borrow. So, um, And then it would be repayable in two, in two weeks. So if you borrow, uh, say, $300 um, on a payday loan, um, at $15 per hundred, that would mean what? You'd get $245 um, and repay $300 in two weeks. Now, that's obviously very expensive. Um, why is it expensive? Because it turns out that people who take payday loans are very high risks. <laughs> and there's high risks they're not going to repay it. Uh, and so you have to charge a high rate if you're the lender um, in order to, uh, to, to do that. Um, but the reason they use payday loans is because they don't have any better alternative. If they had credit cards, they would use credit cards. Um, they don't have credit cards is what the evidence shows. And so basically the question for somebody who takes a payday loan is, do you take a payday loan, which is expensive uh, because it's risky, or do you do without um, and when you ask payday loan uh, customers what would happen if they couldn't get a payday loan and they couldn't get the credit for anywhere else, they talk about things like going without food. Um, they talk about using payday loans for rent um, payments. They talk about pay, using payday loans to make um, uh, to pay utilities and uh, uh, in, in things like that. Um, and so you could have real hardship from it. Um, and what we also know is that if you – Simply by getting rid of the supply of a product like payday loans, you don't get rid of the demand. People still need that money. And so to come back to where you started, historically, we know what that looks like, which is, in fact, the leg breakers and the loan sharks. 
Uh, and I'll just give you an example, um, which is um, in 1968, before payday loans were legal in most states, the United States Senate did an investigation and they found that the second largest revenue source of the mafia was, uh, was loan sharking, making small dollar loans uh, to people. Um, and it was estimated, I think at the time, that it was about a $10 billion a year industry um, in the United States, which to give you a sense of that, I think that's about $69 billion in today's money. And compared to that, the entire payday loan industry in America, both online and bricks and mortar, is about, I think, $32 billion. So the size of the illegal loan shark market in the 1970s was double the size of the payday uh, lending market today adjusted for money. Um, and they weren't just charging high interest rates. They literally were breaking legs. They literally were threatening people. Um, they literally were making all kinds of threats that they, you know, that they would go through with one. Uh, there was a, most people don't realize this. If you've ever watched the movie Rocky, what was Rocky's job at the beginning of that movie? He was actually collecting for a loan shark. Um, and that's where the whole movie starts, which is he shows up and says, basically, you know, I'm here from the mob and you owe us money and I'd hate to have to break your thumbs. Uh, but that's my job. Right. That was a large part of uh, American city life before um, before we had high cost lenders like uh, payday lenders, which was really vicious, violent loan sharks that uh, uh, preyed on on people. And so we're in a world where there's no good solutions. People need the money. History tells us they're going to get it from somewhere. Um, and it's either going to be in a in a high cost way, but in a legal market or they're going to end up turning to the leg breakers and uh, loan sharks. Do you think we'd revert to that if the um, regulations were imposed on payday lending or if it was completely eliminated? Um, you would predict we would. What we do know is that every time we have run that experiment, it has come out the same way. There's literally no exception uh, of times in which we have gotten rid of uh, uh, short-term expensive products and people haven't shifted to something else. Um, and so there's a little bit, it's, it's a, there, there's kind of, it kind of moves around. Uh, right. So one of the great, um, triumphs of recent years on the interesting things is fintech, um, and the ability of fintech to be able to, uh, fintech lenders, uh, to do things online. Um, and if you got rid of, uh, payday loans, what you would probably end up with was, uh, to some extent, um, some of that would jump online and a lot of it would be illegal. That would be better, obviously, than uh, leg breakers. But we know, for example, in countries that don't have um, those sorts of markets, um, Italy being a good example, what happens when credit markets dry up is that traditionally the, um, the, the, the illegal lenders step in to fill the, uh, to fill the void because people still need money to keep from being evicted. They still need money to keep their kids from being thrown out of daycare um, they still need money to fix their cars so they can get to work and not get fired. All those sorts of uh, realities are are really realities and people are going to desperate people do desperate things. What do you think or not even what do you think? What what is Congress saying and what what is the argument for regulating payday lending? The argument for regulating payday lending really is just good old fashioned paternalism, uh, which is, to put it bluntly, people who don't use payday loans um, don't like payday loans. People who use payday loans support payday loans. Um, but but basically, upper class uh, people think that, you know, lower income people are, are stupid um, and that they can't be trusted uh, with their um, with their finances, um, and that somehow or another, if uh, they also have, I think this um, fiction that, uh, that 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 low income people use payday loans and the like uh, to live frivolously to buy big screen TVs and stuff like that, which is not the case when you when you ask them. And so, at root, I think it's really paternalism, uh, or what Alex Tabarrok has called credit snobs, uh, which is. You, I don't trust you to be able to uh, control your own your own finances. Um, there's more elaborate arguments. There's new arguments, but I think in the end, that's basically what it is: is that they just think payday loans are too expensive, 
um, and that uh, people are too stupid um, to be able to use payday loans uh, responsibly. And so we need to protect them from themselves. Ah, the idea of the irresponsible American consumer. (laughs) That's right. So to wrap up, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Well, I've I've thought about this, uh, uh, and I'm going to give you two, um, if that sounds good. Uh, The first one goes back to where we started this conversation on uh, something I've changed my mind on. Um, And it relates to where we opened this discussion by talking about budget deficits and the like. Um, And there was a a debate um, in the 70s and into the 80s between two great economists and two of my intellectual heroes, uh, James Buchanan of uh, George Mason, uh, who won the Nobel Prize, and Milton Friedman from Chicago also won the Nobel Prize. And the question was the following, and they called it uh, what they called the starve the beast hypothesis. And during the 1980s, this was tested because the idea was Ronald Reagan cut taxes. Um, and the idea was the real problem was not taxes then. Uh, the, the, the real problem is not tax, taxing its spending, right, um, as we, we started off. And Friedman had the hypothesis that if you cut taxes, inevitably the government would have to cut spending because uh, to deal with the fact that there would be inevitable budget uh, deficits. Um, That was called the starve the beast theory. Starve the government of revenue and eventually it'd be forced to cut spending. Mm -hmm. Buchanan said that's not right. Um, In fact, Buchanan said, if you cut taxes, not only does that not mean that people will, uh, the government will reduce spending, they'll just borrow more, but it might actually mean the government spends more. Uh, the reason being that if I can get a dollar of government and only have to pay 75 cents in taxes, then I'm going to demand more, not less government. Um, at the time, perhaps it was wishful thinking, I thought that Friedman was right. Um, I think time has taught us that Buchanan was right, uh, that the empirical evidence suggests that cutting taxes does not lead to cuts in spending. It doesn't even lead to expending remaining constant. It leads to spending increasing. Uh, And I always joke that bipartisanship in Washington means that we will will simultaneously cut taxes, which is what Republicans want, and raise spending, which is what Democrats want. (laughs) And that's bipartisanship. Um, Go ahead. That's kind of what's happening, it seems like. Well, not even what's happening. Taxes are pretty constant, but spending is going up, 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 and the deficit is growing, growing, growing. And- that's right. Really, and the what government we saw during just... the past four years was exactly that, which is uh, uh, Trump kind of pushed through a big tax cut. I think there was a, a historic tax cut, which is there are some really remarkable and important things in there, such as limiting the mortgage interest uh, deduction, caps on the salt taxes, um, the cuts in corporate taxes. These are all things that needed to be done for a long time that people thought were politically unviable. But the overall impact has been that basically they cut taxes and raise spending, which is a very popular platform, it turns out, with the American voters. Uh, and, uh, and spending cuts are a lot less, uh, a lot less popular. Um, the second thing I would say that I've really learned over time as I've gotten older is I've come to appreciate, and a lot of this was catalyzed by the reading of Jonathan Haidt, Uh, the author of the great book, The Righteous Mind. Um, And I've really come to appreciate the extent to which um, a a lot of what people think and do is subconscious. Um, It's not rational that that people think it is. But what Haidt says is that a lot of what goes on in politics is people pick a result, pick an answer for whatever reason, um, and then you tend to systematically overvalue evidence that supports that and systematically dismiss evidence that is contrary to that because um, cognitive, dis- uh, cognitive dissonance is hard for people and people try to avoid it. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I have become aware of is um, how um, uh, in the end, how little people are really moved by rational argument. Um, as opposed to intuition uh, and sentiment. And the second thing, and this is what I'd like to leave you with, uh, uh, Juliet, and your your listeners who obviously 
purchasing these things. One of the things I've learned is nobody ever persuades anybody of anything. People persuade themselves, uh, which is you have to be thinking, I would like to know the answer to this uh, question. Um, and I'm not satisfied with my current answer to it before you're going to actually go out and be persuaded by somebody to change your mind. Otherwise, it's just an argument. Uh, and so I say that in terms of nobody persuades anybody of anything. People persuade themselves um, and that uh, um, and they only get persuaded if they want to be persuaded um, that uh, um, and otherwise people just double down on their arguments and double down on the worldview. And it's easy to find, especially in the Internet age. Um, data um, and information that confirms what you want the answer to be, uh, regardless of how loopy or implausible or crazy uh, or, um, 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 you know, uh, or unprincipled uh, something is. And so I think that's that's a good life lesson for people who um, are trying to think about how to uh, engage uh, with other people in intellectual conversation, uh, which is don't try to persuade people. Persuade yourself and be your own toughest critic of your own ideas um, and keep uh, keep keep questioning, keep asking questions uh, um, and be open to um, things that you that, you know, intellectual uh, humility, epistemic humility and, and remain open to ideas that you may not have thought about. That is a great I don't know. It's a great lesson. And I think it's a really good ending point. I will definitely be keeping that in mind. That's all that we have time for today. Thank you so much, Todd, for all of your time and your insight. And definitely I'm going to have you back for things like the 17th Amendment and hopefully state bankruptcy because you're also an expert in these topics and I really want to know more and I think everyone else does too. Well, thank um, you. I look forward to that. I'd also like to thank everyone who listens, subscribes, and shares the Great Antidote podcast. If you'd like to be on the podcast or have a guest in mind, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at thecgo.org. Thank you. Bye.